everyone. You're listening to one of our first episodes for Angel Nears, a community of startup builders based in Silicon Valley, where experienced operators share their knowledge on how to build and scale startup companies that will create an impact and provide long-lasting value along the way. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and today our guest is Igor Plutnikov, who brings 30 years of business experience in developing technology products. Two of the startups that he's founded were acquired by F5 Networks and Cisco. But before we get into that, Igor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, so how about to get started? You just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, obviously, I'm originally from Russia. You can tell by my accent and by, by my name. Uh, educated in Moscow as a physicist. Uh, my uh, uh, postgraduate studies were in the field of uh, astronomical image processing, basically enhancing pictures taken by the large uh, uh, ground-based telescopes. And this naturally sucked me into doing modeling and uh, image processing on computers. And I ended up being a part of this computer revolution that, you know, still going on strong. So started a little startup in Russia with uh, colleagues doing the same, you know, image processing, but this time for desktop publishing. And this uh, essentially ended up being my resume when I came to the US in 92, uh, where I joined work on IP-based video conferencing. Mm -hmm. And we got bought by a nice little company called Netscape Communications. <laughs> So, I think I've heard of them, yeah. Right. It's actually amazing how many people these days don't know what it is, what it was. And it was a great company that really started the internet. And well, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. Um, of course, I know Netscape. But for the listeners that might not, yeah, do you want to tell us like what the big deal was uh, about that? Well, that's... Netscape was the, the company that commercialized the browser. It was the company founded by Mark Andreessen, who is best known now as part of Andreessen Horowitz uh, VC company, and Jim mm -hmm. Clark. And Jim Clark is, you know, a billionaire who uh, founded uh, a company called SGI Silicon Graphics that uh, Hollywood ran on in the 80s and 90s. Then he co-founded Netscape, and then he went on to uh, co-found uh, another big company in the healthcare space, basically a very, very well-known guy. So uh, they started the company that commercialized the, uh, uh, the browser. And essentially, they started the internet revolution. That, that, mm -hmm. That's, you know, I, I, I usually tell people who don't know, you know, they used to be Google before Google became Google. They were the coolest company in the world. <laughs> we're so used to like Chrome and, and Firefox. I don't know what, you know, the, the trendy people are doing nowadays right. or using for their browsers, right. but this was kind of like the first browser. Right. It first started with a browser called Mosaic written by Mark Andreessen and then Netscape commercialized mm -hmm. Netscape Navigator. And that was it. You know, mm -hmm. that was the thing to use back then in those days. So let's get back to you. Uh, can we hear a little bit more about uh, getting acquired and what that was like? That was a mixed bag in a sense, because, you know, we had a great product. Essentially, you know, today you use Hangouts, you use Zoom, and what we were doing was a very, very early version of that. Netscape bought us and, uh, you know, trimmed down the product, uh, made it a part of the uh, Netscape communicator suite. And this was all fine and dandy. That was exciting. And then I switched to working on the media streaming, you know, audio streaming. And Netscape decided that, they don't want to compete in this space. And mm -hmm. essentially, they can't the product. After which, I quit. 
So, you know, the lesson yeah. to me was the acquisition didn't really go all that well. And I, I swore to myself that never, ever again will I let an M&A process go sideways. And I think I did well on that <laughs> with my other startups. So I, I want to talk about hiring, but before we do that, can you tell us like what your role was, maybe your title uh, when you were when you were working before leaving the company? Uh, well, I was uh, a technical lead on the uh, media server project. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about hiring. What are what are some of the challenges you faced in hiring? Back at Netscape or overall in my career? Well, I guess take me through it. Like, did it change um, before Netscape and after? Uh, did you participate at uh, in both of those instances? Well, before I, and was, after I was not acquired? an executive uh, at Netscape and before, so you know that challenge really presented itself, uh, you know, later on. I think the biggest uh, challenge in hiring is to find the right guy, you know, the right girl. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I want to take it back to the startup days when, when it was like smaller teams. Can you tell me about hiring back then? Well, I hired through my personal network. You know, I hired people I knew, friends, uh, relatives. Um, I actually opened an office in Siberia and my cousin was the point guy there. So he harvested mm -hmm. the local talent, which was actually pretty good talent. So that that was the stick. So we we did uh, we did uh, off uh, offshoring, even you know back in the old days. Before today, yes. how did that go? I mean, um, you, they say you should never you know be roommates uh, with your with your friends, but how about hiring? Well, my you know one of my current business partners is my old friend whom we were roommates with, and he, I actually hired him for that first startup of mine and. We've been working together ever since. So for me, it worked out very, very well. However, that said, people do fall out. It's like, you know, almost like a marriage. You know, you go into a startup, you, you are in a very intense and very, very personal relationship with the key people. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to, to know beforehand whether or not you're going to work well with someone. Have you noticed any patterns when it comes to hiring um, as far as what makes a candidate great in the end versus just good? It boils down to several things. First thing is the smarts. You want to hire a smart person because mm -hmm. individual productivity in almost all aspects of, you know, of uh, professional life and specifically in engineering and science, because part of what we do here in Silicon Valley is science as well. It's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the individual productivity varies uh, by the factor of 20. Um, when I was an executive... What do you mean by that? When I was an executive at Cisco, I had enough people uh, reporting to me so that I could run a little bit of statistics. And mm -hmm. I measured productivity in, uh, in simple terms, like, you know, how many lines of code uh, programmers produce. How many lines of documentation they produce? How many bugs they fix? And what I've discovered, uh, all of those uh, parameters correlate, correlate very, very strongly. And if you look at the strongest guy, you know, the, the top producer, the smartest guy, and to the most mediocre one, you will have a differential of 20 to 1. And guess what? Nobody, you know, is paid 
20 times more than the other guy. Which tells you that it's always better for you to find the right guy, you know, top producer, pay him well. It's going to be better than hiring 10 uh, mediocre guys. So I think this is the challenge. This is the first challenge. You need to, to find the right guy in terms of the skills and abilities. Uh, second aspect is, you know, this person has to be conscientious, a hardworking, dedicated, responsible, you know, all those things. Because some talented people can't hold it. You know, they, they mm-hmm. do not have a stay in power, and you do need a stay in power. And lastly, uh, there is a personal side to it. You know, you want to have a pleasant relationship. So you, you mm-hmm. don't want to be sharing an office or a team with an angry person. I think I've heard this as like the airport rule. You want you want to hire someone that you can imagine that you could spend 24 hours in an airport with, just you and them. That's right. If you can't That's spend right. more than 24 hours with someone, how are you going to work That's with right. them long term? That's right. And also, I would say that the uh, you know context in a startup is somewhat contentious. You expect people to mm. argue. You want them to argue. But you want yeah. them to be happy while they argue. You want them to argue... And then go have a beer afterwards. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And uh, I currently work at a startup. I use the term hey a lot. It's uh, healthy adult yelling. So if you're not doing a lot of hey, uh, you're probably comfortable and, and, and you're probably not getting a lot done. Exactly. Um, exactly. You do not want to be too comfortable. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so we're talking about great hires. Where do you find these guys? So we're talking about like sourcing hires. Where do you look? How do you find like the top guys? It is difficult. And, you know, looking at how the methodology has been changing over the, you know, decades of my career, I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, there are things that people try. There are practices. practices. But if somebody tells you he knows exactly how to do it, this person is not telling you the truth. It is difficult. Yes. And it is statistical. Yeah. And you cannot be 100% correct. Uh, but the, the most reliable thing is to use your own personal network. You know, you talk to people you know. You ask people you know to refer to you, the people they, they know. So this is the first thing. Again, if you just limit yourself to that, that's too comfortable and it doesn't scale. So you mm-hmm. need to expand your network. Uh, and that's more difficult. You know, you need to start looking for people who are outside of your network. And there are tools like LinkedIn, obviously, there are hiring sites. But then how do you filter? How do you detect who's the good person and who's uh, just, you know, a pretender, right? Uh, what I found what I found works the best, at least it used to work for me, uh, you know, look at the accomplishments. Hmm. Look at the uh, projects that this person uh, has done. And have this person talk about it. You know, do you see passion? Mm. Do you see knowledge? Do you see the understanding? Do you see the pride? Mm-hmm. I think you know this is what works for me. If I see the pride, if I see the you know appreciation of of this person's own accomplishments, I think it's a very very good sign. Yeah, that's that's tricky. I mean, uh, it's essentially looking for intangibles, and you know it's hard to get that down to a science when, when you're looking for something that we know what it is, pride, um, but it's it's really hard to quantify. Uh, absolutely. So you would look uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know that Google used to, to give people, you know, mind twisters. And it doesn't work. Right. Because, well, it does kind of account for some 
correlation with IQ, and IQ is what you want. But you end up hiring people who are good at solving, uh, you know, mind twisters. And this is not exactly right. what they're supposed to do professionally, uh, you know, at, at work. I was just going to say, you can make inferences when you see someone, you know, uh, turn the wheels in their head and try and solve a problem. But it's it's not going to translate one-to-one directly to what you're looking for in a startup. Correct. It can just be a good indicator. Correct. It's one of... It's only one of the indicators. And I've known people yeah. who, who worked for me and they were insanely great and they couldn't pass an interview. They, yeah. they were just, you know, clamped down and they wouldn't be able to code under, you know, under several pairs of eyes looking over their shoulder. Right. Well, that's why you hire through your network, right? Correct. Correct. But yeah. again, it doesn't scale. Unfortunately, it doesn't scale. It's good for a startup. It's not good for your expansion phase. Well, let's talk about that. So how quickly can you scale a team when you're also trying to, you know, maintain that startup culture that that's so lean and able to tackle different problems uh, and, and respond quickly to changes? You know, how do you scale that? Well, it is difficult. I have to to make a disclaimer. I've never really gone through a true explosive phase of my startups. Uh, our growth was more organic, you know, we hired people when we needed them and uh, we didn't have a lot of money to do this. So we did it on a fairly slow pace. Uh, but uh, what I want to say is if your startup starts generating a lot of revenue, you feel that you need to grow, there is a great temptation to start hiring more people. Uh, mm-hmm. The danger here is not just the culture. It's also productivity. Small teams, you know, let's say a dozen people, they are much more productive per person than, than larger teams. They can out, outperform a team which is, you know, 200 people large. So you have to be really, really, really careful about expanding the team. Yeah, I don't think anyone's arguing with you there. I mean, before Instagram got acquired, it was like 10 guys in a room, right? And sometimes when your organization is too big, you get these kind of checks and balances within the company. People are competing and and it's hard to bring, it's hard to pivot and and make something when you have a lot of voices in the room. Yeah. So I think, you know, what's what's the challenge here is, uh, you know, compartmentalizing your technology. Uh, Mm -hmm. Try to keep islands in your product that are still... uh, managed and developed by relatively small teams. Of course, you know, you will have an overhead of cross-team communication, but at least, you know, you would maintain the sense of ownership, which I think is very, very important to maintain the sense Mm -hmm. of ownership of what people do, because this keeps their pride in their accomplishments. So would you say it's important to hire slowly in those early stages of a startup's life? Yes. Yes, I firmly believe that it is. But on the same, uh, at the same time, you should be opportunistic. If you find a good mm. person, hire him or her. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, that's a, a great um, caveat to add. You know, it's it's terrible to just live by a rule. Um, but of course, if you see someone with the intellect and the people soft skills, uh, go ahead and hire them. How does hiring accelerate for a startup? Because, you know, I'm imagining it's early. You're building your team very uh, uh, intentionally picking 
each piece very carefully, but at some point you're going to have to accelerate when it comes to hiring. Can you just tell me what that's like and uh, maybe some best practices or, or insights from, from when you've experienced that? Well, a rule of thumb is that, you know, when you hire a new person, the first period of time, this person's going to be net negative for you. Mm-hmm. Well, because there is a ramp, you know, and there is an overhead of you and your people spending time with this person and, you know, helping to find the ropes, so to speak. That's why everybody tries to find an exact fit for the position they're trying to fill, because they're trying right. to minimize this overhead. And this this rarely happens. Uh, so, uh, and some people do it better than others. I remember I hired a guy uh, to fill a position of a sustaining engineer. You know, that happened in my early days when uh, Five Networks bought my startup. And mm-hmm. we went through this process of explosive growth of the product footprint in a very, very short period of time because we had the technology and all of a sudden we had a huge sales force and the product just went out to the masses. And we were just buried on the load of, of bugs and feature requests. And I hired this guy whom I knew from the Netscape days. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Hmm. No, everything became quiet. He just became yeah. a wall that shielded us. So things like that, they do happen. On another hand, you know, you can have a person that you spend, you know, two, three months ramping up. Now, what can help, you know, to ramp up? Well, if you build a technology correctly, it helps. You know, do not build a monolithic monolithic code base. Try to compartmentalize your product. Now, if you can give this person, a new person, an isolated task, great. Uh, I've been usually trying to find a task that has a very high optionality if it succeeds. But if it fails, it's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. And this way you can actually gauge what the person is capable of. Of. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, you let this person go. I still want to ask one more question about the evolution of hiring. Early hires and late hires, they're, you're looking for maybe different things. Yes, but what absolutely. stays the same? What stays the same when you're looking for an early hire and a late hire? What what never changes in the hiring process, and then maybe what does? Well. Ideally, as I already mentioned, you want to hire mm-hmm. top people because they will be more productive and per output, they will cost you less even they, even when you pay on them more. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the best uh, document that I read about, about this is the HR document from Netflix. You know, it's you know, the the people who wrote this document they're much more articulate uh, than I am. It's a great, great document. I highly, highly recommend to read it. This this is their stick. They're trying to hire the best people. They pay them top dollar. They overpay them, and they retain them until they remain top people. You know, until they produce, and they apply this methodology even while being you know multi billion dollar you know big company. So is that HR on Netflix? I do not remember exactly what's the name of this document, but if you Google HR methodology of, of uh, Netflix, I'm sure you'll find it. I, f- I found this document to be very, very uh, insightful, and it really corresponds to my own thoughts on the subject. Okay. 
Well, and, and if you can't find it, we can uh, look into it afterwards and, and make sure it's in the show notes for you guys listening. Uh, next, I want to talk about stages in hiring. Uh, can you tell me the difference between early stages uh, when you're looking for doers and then, and then later when you're looking for repetitors? And what are those? Well, I would I would call it slightly differently. I I call them starters and finishers. Uh, okay. The early stage is incredibly obviously important uh, because you start a company. Let's say you start a company. You have you know a co-founder or or you know two co-founders. Nobody is well-rounded. You know nobody mm-hmm. has a perfect set of skills. Even if you have sort of on paper a good combination of you know of uh, responsibilities uh, in the executive team and the management team, you're still not very well rounded. So and you know there is this saying that um, you do not work on your weaknesses; you work on your strengths. Now working on your weaknesses doesn't really pay. What you do with your weaknesses, you complement them by the people that you hire. And initially, you know, when you when you're still building the team, this is the key. You know, you find people who complement you, who are smarter in certain areas than you are. People who can surprise you, people who will deliver more than you ask them to. And those yeah. are the starters. Now, finishers, well, usually when you grow, when the technology matures, there are a lot of things that you know just need to be done. You know, bugs to fix, features to implement, and you know, you can have people who are maybe less uh Creative, I think creative is is the word, but you still want to have yeah. diligent, responsible, productive people. People that get the work done. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I uh, my mind goes straight to my swimming days, thinking about a relay race. You know, you'd have four guys. You would have the starter, and it's really important for the starter to be able to jump off the block as faster than everybody and and get you started basically on a good footing. Um, so you want someone that, you know, can consistently do that. And then the finishers, you know, those are the most competitive guys. They're the ones that got to get to the wall first. So, so they really need to be able to, you know, look at the, look at what's going on and, and sort of complete the task. Right. Right. And by the way, sometimes the starters, they leave the company before it becomes, you know, big and, uh, basically a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. Then do not, they, they don't necessarily stay, and that's okay as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as a startup, how how would you compete with big corporations like Google and Facebook for for talent when they have you know all the resources in the world? Well, the short answer: you don't. You can't. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. you can't. Hiring these days in the Silicon Valley is very very difficult. So you know people look for the talent elsewhere, and mm-hmm. you know it's it's been a norm in the industry to go overseas, you know, to look for mm-hmm. people in India, China, Eastern Europe, basically everywhere, anywhere. And a tempting thought is that people do it to save money. Because on average, it's been, for a long time, it's been that, you know, a fully loaded cost of a person overseas is one third what you pay here in the Silicon Valley. But... If you remember what I said about people's productivity being different up to, you know, mm-hmm. 20 to 1, 3 to 1 is, mm-hmm. is, is, is not a big number compared to 20 to 1. So you may save on money and you can lose on talent. So when you go, when you go to get that talent overseas, it's really the talent that should be the focus. 
And you still want to pay the top dollar for that locality if you can find a good person. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you're saying um, be don't be cheap on your engineers, but there is an opportunity to hire overseas, maybe not the top guys, but sort of the guys that are... Top guys locally. That's, that, that's what you go after. You do hire top guys locally. And I have to say that... Uh, the quality of the talent overseas, it has grown tremendously since the days that when I had the office in, in Siberia, I had a relatively recent experience with uh, people in the city of Ulyanovsk. And, you know, they're very well educated, very up to date, and they know everything. So mm-hmm. great talent. Yeah. How do you do that if you're, you know, maybe from the Silicon Valley and... Uh... And you've never been to Europe. I think it's you hard. Know? I think you need to find somebody who has been or maybe somebody who has local connections. And, you know, the, the critical hire is the, the person who will run this office. Because, yeah. you know, this person will do the local hiring. This person will do all of the administrative trivia and do not discount that as well, you know. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so people say hire great people. That's kind of a platitude that goes around. It is. But how do you how do you make that process actionable and quantifiable? Because you know, hire great people sounds great and it's easy to remember. But how do we sort of bring some science and methodology into into this? As I already alluded to, I don't think that you know we're at a point where there is a science and methodology. <laughs> I I just don't believe in it. I think, you know, the, the best we could have done, we could have uh, administered an IQ test, a real mm. one, not not what people do on the, on the inter- internet where they ask you 20 questions. No, a real one takes actually two days, but it's not legal. Mm. It is illegal in the United States to hire on the base of an IQ test. So people do all kinds of uh, proxies to it. Mm. And here you get your mind twisters or, you know, coding exercises. Right, that we've already mentioned, the, yes, the yes, mind yes, twisters yes, from Google. Yes. So I think in a way the science here is intentionally, you know, suspended. And maybe it's a good thing, who knows? Yeah. Do you think, uh, so overseas, are, are there limitations or can you actually hire using an IQ test in, in other countries? Because if you're hiring overseas, huh. uh, I don't, what are the rules there? You know, you've just surprised me. I haven't thought of that. <laughs> all right i guess we, we all have a little bit of homework for after this <laughs> thank you that's a good point that's a very good point i, I love to walk away from my meetings with uh something to do so but that, great. Said, that said iq is the best predictor of individual success but it's a lousy predictor you know for itself it does have a correlation with success it's relatively weak so you need to augment it with more stuff but i don't know how, how do you figure out that the person is responsible other than looking at the past, uh, other than watching know, them work, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah people, people have tried, people have tried, uh, you know, hiring on a trial basis. I really dislike this idea because if you do this, you start from a point of distrust, yeah, and that's that's, that's true. And you know, the, the beginning of the professional relationship is very, very important. And besides, I mean, we're in California, it's a you know. You can, you know, hire anybody. You can fire anybody. Mm-hmm. So you know, hire yeah. will state. That's uh, yeah. 
So hiring is this big problem, but when you're starting a startup, you obviously have other responsibilities um, and, and a lot of work to do. So how much time do you spend on your regular, you know, growing the business activities versus hiring? How big of a commitment should you make to that? I think it's uh, it's very situational. I mean, there, there's been time in my startups where I spent absolutely zero time on hiring. We're just all heads down, you know. No stop mm-hmm. grind and thinking about nothing else. And there were periods of time when I needed people, and that could take up to fifty percent of my time. Mm. Okay, so I guess it's variable. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you got to read the room, understand. You you, you got to have your goal in mind, and uh, hiring is going to you know how much time you need to spend on hiring is going to change based on of that. Of course. Now, when you're um, a big company, that's a very different thing. Well, you can hire a department to do it. And that's what people do. Yes. Yeah. Um, what are some of the crucial areas you should assess potential candidates? I mean, I know we already said IQ and, uh, and you started talking about maybe some like pride, uh, are they proud when they talk about, you know, their work? Um, are there any other areas you can look to besides IQ and accomplishments or have we already kind of covered that? We kind of covered that, uh, conscientiousness, you know, the ability to hit deadlines, the ability to work hard basically the stay in power. Yeah, I think it's important. I'm just going to reiterate your point of using your network. Like you, you get the best insights by just talking to people most of the time. And, uh, you know, people are pretty good judges of character. Um, yes. And, you know, um, in general. and when you hire outside of your network, or the close network, then you really need to chase down the references. And not only in the reference that, that a candidate uh, provides, but, you know, find your own. <laughs> Just case in right. point, uh, uh, my boss in my uh, previous gig uh, spent about four months, you know, to hire me. A long time, <laughs> long time. I was given yeah. up on that. So he talked to just about anyone at Cisco that he knew <laughs> who knew me. Mm. He did his due diligence. He did a lot of due diligence, yes, a lot. And how'd that work out? Uh, well, we worked together for nine years. I think it was a very yeah. good re- professional relationship. And, you know, we still, in a sense, work together because he's a, uh, a chairman of the board of the startup that I'm now uh, with, that mm. I'm a co-founder of. Cool. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that, uh, just quickly? Uh, yes, uh, what we're trying to do in this startup, it's called uh, Zytra. Uh, we're trying to uh, reinvent the uh, very old traditional profession of mortgage broker with uh, artificial intelligence. I'm sure you've read a lot of, you've seen a lot of articles that would list the uh, occupations that are going to get killed by artificial intelligence. You know, it's usually. Right, I read. Uh, what is it? Um, need not apply. That's like almost ten years old now, maybe. Right. And humans need not apply. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> what, what's interesting, you know, this profession of mortgage broker—it's never on that list, so it's not obvious at mm. all. That's why I like this idea, and I think it's also very, very long overdue because it's an old profession. It hasn't really been fully automated, and it's very, very lucrative. All right. Well, I'm going to stop you there. I don't want to give away any more secrets. Because this is still not fleshed out. Sure. (laughs) Okay. 
now let's go back. I have a couple more questions on hiring. Um, when you're talking to people, they're in, in an interview, they're presenting their best self. They're bringing their resume with all of their accomplishments and they're sort of prepped to talk about those things. How do you get beyond the answers that they give you and, and to, the, to the actual truths um, behind those answers when you're interviewing someone? So it's like interview strategy, I guess. It's a good question. Well, you sort of cross-correlate the, you know, the answers. But it is difficult. I mean, I, I can offhandedly give you a dozen examples of people who really shined during the interview and, you know, didn't really deliver when you hired them. It, it is difficult. It is very, very difficult. Those are different skills, you know. For sure. Being good at an interview is a skill. It is. It is. One that I wish I, I spent more time on. Um, but I'm doing okay. So we, we talked about hiring people. Let's talk about retaining people. What are some strategies you have for retaining your, your top performers? Because, you know, of course they're going to get, they're going to be sought after uh, because they're the top guys. So, so what can you do to keep your best people around? Well, I would say that loyalty can be either bought or inspired. And it's better to have both to some extent. So, you know, monetarily, you want your people to be comfortable. Not necessarily overpaid, but comfortable. Because uh, every time you give somebody a raise, you know, the, the jolt of, of, of this event, it dissipates within a month. Hmm. Okay, people forget about yeah. it. They, they really want to be comfortable financially. And that's good enough. But people forget too quickly. It's normal. It's normal. That's, that's how most of us operate. But there is yeah. another side, which is, you know, you want them to be inspired. Mm -hmm. I think managing engineers is sort of kind of easy. Well, in, in the same way as, you know, playing the stock market is easy. You know, you buy low, you sell high. I mean, it's easy to uh -huh. say. It's not easy to do. You want to keep people... It's simple. It might not be easy. Right. You want to keep engineers challenged that's the key you know the, the best thing is when you ask somebody to do impossible that's the best thing mm. that happened to me as a manager you know I'm, I'm happy that it happened to me quite a few times you ask people to do impossible you yourself you have no clue how to do it and you know first thing you hear from from people you're stupid you have no idea you're asking for you know for something impossible and then two weeks later they would come to you and say hey you're stupid i figured it all out and that's just, that's just beautiful one path. Yeah. So I think a happy engineer is a busy engineer. Okay. Do you treat, this is kind of off the cuff, but do you, would you treat, uh, you know, other departments like you would engineers? Um, or is that specific to engineering teams? I think it's mostly specific to engineering teams. Okay. And it's hard to me to say because, you know, as a manager, I ran engineering, you know, always I ran engineering. I've never been a CEO of a company. So that's your experience. That makes sense. Yeah, that's my um, So we're talking about building teams and, you know, at a certain point, your startup, it needs to grow. How do you scale yourself as a founder when your company has... Um, grown to a certain stage and mm -hmm. you can see, you know, it's, it's still got growing to do. Well, I like to quote uh, Napoleon from time to time, you know, the, 
Napoleon Bonaparte. Okay. And reportedly he said once that nobody should have more than seven direct reports. So there is this mechanical aspect of it. You should not have too many direct reports. Otherwise, you know, your attention is going to be, uh, you know, uh, everywhere and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll lose it effectively. So you delegate, you delegate and you delegate in order to keep your own bandwidth reasonable. Right. Interesting. So that's one side. And another side is the, the competency side, the, the well-rounded side that I mentioned that, you know, nobody is good at everything. Mm-hmm. So you should first of all, first of all, compliment yourself. Compliment Which means yourself addressing your weaknesses. Yes, address your weaknesses. Hire people who can compliment your weaknesses. Yeah. Um, at what point do you know it's it's time to start doing that? What what point do you let go? As a founder. Well, I would say when your team, when your engineering team is again, I'm an engineer, is above twenty people, it's certainly time. Yeah. It is certainly time. Hmm. I, I guess imagine you're a founder and your startup has grown and it's maybe been five years and, and you've reached, you know, you're still around, which is a, a big deal for a startup. How do you, how do you admit to yourself that maybe there are area like areas you're not so strong in and how do you go about hiring people that might be better that than you at your own job? Well, I would say that in this situation, your boss or the board will probably tell you. Yeah. That's, that's point number one. Mm-hmm. And for yourself, again, you have to be very cognizant that you, everybody has weaknesses. It's mm-hmm. very, very important to understand what you're not good at. For example, mm-hmm. I'm very, very good at managing internal teams. You know, I'm decent, but I'm not the best when it comes, you know, to the uh, outside relationships for the company. I have to force myself. This doesn't come to me naturally. So, you know, if I have somebody who does it better, I'll gladly, you know, offload this to this person. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to, uh, you know, always analyze self and and, uh, a lot of times... We don't do that enough. Um. I've known people. I've known people who who were just very, very stubborn in real in realizing that. And I think they could have been a lot more successful. Understanding that you know, you know, a person that I have in mind, I'm going to you know tell the the name, but he's a great CTO. He's a great idea engineer, but he's not a CEO. Mm-hmm. And he should have you know given up on that part a long time ago. Do you think there are any indicators taking it back to hiring? Do you think there's any indicators of, you know, people that might be good at um, hearing advice and and doing retrospective thinking? Or is that something that you can't tell off the bat? It's hard to say. Really hard to say. I was just, um, I'm here to ask the hard questions. So uh, let's just keep moving on. We'll talk about uh, localized and remote talent. So, so you mentioned you ran an engineering team uh, where again? In- well, I had uh, several experiences. So I created one team in, uh, in Siberia, in the city of Tomsk. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I had a remote team in India. I had remote teams uh, when I was at Cisco in several locations uh, in Massachusetts and Colorado here in San Jose, and, you know, we started developing a team in, 
in India. And recently I had a team in the city of Ulyanovsk in Russia. Okay, so you have like a wealth of experience and you've also run internal teams, I imagine, of course. Uh, local teams. Of course. of course. So can you tell me about like some of the pros and the cons of a local versus a remote team? Sure, absolutely. Well, let me tell you the first sort of fundamental truth. Nothing beats a co-located team if you can afford it. Like mm -hmm. nothing beats a co-located team. Nothing can uh, substitute for just a brief... Uh, chat at a water cooler because yeah. you know those uh, spontaneous interactions between people are great and you know you just mm -hmm. you know you heard a remark you replied to it and you grab a guy and they go into a conference room and you start whiteboarding now those are precious yep. moments nothing can substitute them no kind of uh, tool or scheduled meeting but mm -hmm. the caveat is if you can afford it if you cannot afford it cost yes unfortunately cost always comes into play. Well, so with remote teams, uh, the cost savings are there. They're just not as large as, as, you know, simple bean counting would tell you. And there is always an overhead. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you, as a manager, you, if you have a remote team, you start burning the candle on both sides. You know, a typical uh, uh, day routine is you wake up, you open the lid of the computer, you start typing, right? You start to talk yeah. to people because there is a time difference. In the end, you stop talking to people, you close the lid, and you crash. It's mm. unsustainable. It's difficult. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm frowning just thinking about it. I mean, this is the world we're kind of living in today because of coronavirus. That's right. But it's definitely not That's ideal. Right. That's right. So time difference is, uh, is difficult to overcome. There are also mm. cultural aspects. Uh, mm, of course. You know, when I had an Indian team, uh, that was quite a bit of a struggle initially. It came literally to a point when I had uh, another Indian local member of the team who served not exactly as a translator, but as a reinforcer of my points. Yeah. I would say some. He would repeat the same stuff, and then he would look them in the eye, and he would say, "Did you really understand that?" Because I was saying things that were counter to the culture. I was telling him, "Guys, you need to challenge me. Don't say yes. Mm -hmm. I know you disagree. You know, challenge me. Let's let's argue. Let's let's decide what's what's the best." And culturally, it was very difficult. Yeah, I mean, culture stands in the way of communication for sure. It, it, it's a, it's a thing that. Culture makes communication easier when you share culture, but it, it does present challenges when you have opposing cultures. And, and I totally, I, I can see that happening. Well, I'm Russian, so my team in, in Ulyanovsk... Hard to understand but, already. Even, 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 even with that team, you know, I've been out of the country for almost 30 years and they're a younger generation. So, mm -hmm. you know, they were kind of issues that were difficult to overcome. Yeah, how do you communicate? Like, what are the best tools? I mean, we got Slack today. Um, do you have any tips on Slack or or when it comes to communicating online? Uh, what are your insights? What what have you learned to be true about that? Well, what's the best way? To you know, it? twenty years ago, I used ACQ for the same you know stuff that people use Slack for. Mm -hmm. uh, Slack. Uh, well, I honestly, I'm not a big fan. I just don't like, uh, you know, the concept of channels in Slack. 
I think they, they proliferate like crazy. They, they create too much noise. But as a chat, uh, you know, as a multi-point chat, I think it's fantastic. And the integration with other tools is also very, very good. But channels, I'm not a big fan of channels. I've felt it too. Um, you know, you start a channel for something that's very important. It's, it's easy to put a, you know, a SWAT team together that, that works on something very quickly. But, you know, sooner than later, um, you know, you're just going to have more and more channels. You know, you might that's have right. one. That's right. And I'm sharing music and, and podcasts, which is maybe not so useful or maybe it is. And that's uh, that's that's tricky. So um, did you ever compartmentalize like communications? Did you ever like spend an hour a day just for emails or are you sort of always going, always ready to get pinged? Cause it's actually really annoying to me when I get a ping and I'm working on something that, that needs to be responded to. Well, sometimes I do compartmentalize. Sometimes I do. But again, it's contextual. Sometimes you cannot because you're waiting for something. Yeah. You got to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get back to startups. Uh, I want to know what kind of activities you can outsource. I mean, we've said you, there's cost savings potential when it comes to engineering. Um, but what, what are the things you cannot outsource? What do you have to keep uh, in-house? Your core competency. You need to decide from early on what is the core competency of the company, what the company is about. Everything else hmm. can, and a big portion of that should be outsourced. And some of those things are easy, and people have been doing it for now 25 years. You know, you outsource HR, you outsource, mm -hmm. you know, uh, payroll, you outsource uh, uh, 401k and all of those things. You, you even outsource a lot of engineering stuff. And in this day and age, uh, it's actually great because there are a bunch of, you know, cloud services that you can buy and they're cheap and, you know, do not invent the wheel. But your mm -hmm. core competency should stay in the company. Never, ever outsource that. Hmm. How do you go about defining your core competency? I mean, I, I imagine as a founder, you have a really good idea for what it is. Um, but it's your, it down... it's your elevator pitch. It's, it's, it's your competitive advantage. Why would yeah. you outsource your okay. competitive advantage? Good answer. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, how do you go about establishing operating processes in, in startups? That's a good question. And the one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, first of all, uh, everybody has processes. Every uh, startup has a process, even if they don't think about it as a process. Uh, each size of the company has its own sort of sweet spot for, for a process. Large company mm -hmm. necessitates having uh, complicated operational process because that's how they work and that's the how that's how they communicate. You know how people in big companies communicate. In a smaller company, you want them to be lightweight, as lightweight as possible, because they should not distract you from your, uh, you know, core stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so I view processes almost as as code. You know, you design them, you debug them, you evolve them, and keep them lightweight. I mean, there is this spirit of Agile that is captured by the original Agile manifesto, which I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of. You know, keep your processes in that spirit, not necessarily formally, you know, as one of the commonly used Agile practices, but keep the spirit. Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, that's really interesting. 
Um, I think I got one more question and then we'll wrap it up. So how should you go about hiring? I think you come from a technical background, but you know, if you were to uh, come from a non-technical background, how would you go about hiring when it comes to technical positions such as engineering? You know, how do you hire when it's outside of your domain, kind of? Well, I don't think I have a first-hand experience other than talking to people who had the, that problem. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a founder who is a business person and he tried to do engineering and it doesn't quite work. And he doesn't know mm-hmm. what to do. Yes, I've seen that happen. I think you need to find a key person that complements your deficiency. You know, find a technical mm-hmm. co-founder. That'll solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. And understand this early on. Yeah. Interesting. I think uh, I think we have a lot of you know you know maybe not repeating ideas but um, really strong ideas in this in this interview. Um, do you have any more takeaways like key takeaways when it comes to recruiting top guys or should we just end it here? Well, I just want to reiterate that what you should be doing you should be finding the best guys and paying them well. And, you know, one great guy is better than 10 mediocre ones. Okay. I think those are strong words to end on. Before we go, uh, Igor, what's the best way for our listeners to reach and find you? I'm on LinkedIn as Igor Plotnikov. That's the best way. Okay. Okay. Well, now you know where to find him. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, We're going to end it there. If you have any questions, please send us an email at info at angelnears.com. Thanks, Igor, for joining the show, uh, and let's have you back on here soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.